0: the next hour sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your television set. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. In 1964, Leslie Stevens proposed something unheard of within the television industry, that he would complete an episode in four days. Stevens was a producer of the science fiction anthology, The Outer Limits. The show was expensive to produce and was running over budget. To keep the show's finances from ballooning any further, Stevens aimed to make an extremely cheap episode very quickly. Nobody believed it could be done, especially in the time parameters the producer set for himself. But Stevens wrote the script for the episode on a cross-country flight from New York to Los Angeles, and was able to film it in four and a half production days. The total cost for the shoot was $100,000, which made it the cheapest Outer Limits episode ever produced. The episode was titled Controlled Experiment, it's centered on two Martians who come to Earth to observe human behavior. Informed of a murder resulting from a love triangle, the Martians employ a machine that can manipulate time, allowing them to replay the scene of the shooting at different speeds so that they may detect the nuances and emotions leading up to it. Oh, well, you can't go out there. Don't worry, we're on different wavelengths. Eight. Will both the converters slow you down? Mm-hmm. No, it only converts during the flash. From then on, it maintains a steady state. My atoms will slip in between the slower ones. It's like running through a slow revolve. Seven. They won't see you? No, of course not. Their brains and senses pulse too slowly. They may experience a slight sensation like a thin fog, but they won't notice it. Six. I'll stay here. Good. Keep an eye on the dials. Let me know when the countdown hits ground zero. Controlled Experiment was unique in that it was The Outer Limits' only comedic episode. It is rumored that it also served as a pilot for a possible spin-off series, one that never came to fruition. But I believe the title, Controlled Experiment, also described the challenge that Stevens gave himself in producing a scripted television show in approximately four days. And Stevens is attributed with coining the term, Bottle Show which morphed into a popular term used in episodic television today, the bottle episode. A bottle episode is one that is produced inexpensively and will likely use a smaller cast and will take place in one location. It's a cost-cutting move by a studio, often to stay within the confines of a season's budget. I always thought the term bottle episode described those confines, especially the physical ones, in which the plot took place in a singular space, a story encapsulated in a bottle. However, Stevens called it a bottle show, not for its restrictions, but for the power of an episode structured in that manner. In the book The Outer Limits, The Official Companion, Stevens likened it to pulling an episode right out of a bottle like a genie. He said, When they know you can do it, and do it fast, you become the fire department, to bail the show out of trouble. And over the years, the bottle episode has become a staple of episodic, scripted television series. It is still used as a budget-conscious breather at times, and a way for a studio to keep up with the breakneck demands of delivering a show on time and on schedule, on a weekly basis. But bottle episodes have allowed script writers to flex their creative muscles as well. When you confine characters to a single room, the characters and their relationships to one another truly take center stage. The question for each writer seems to be, how can you make this moment more compelling with less? In the final season of NBC's comedy Parks and Rec, the episode Leslie and Ron trapped two former coworkers into the office in which they first became friends, giving them a chance to repair their friendship after a long fallout. It also gave fans of the show the opportunity to see two beloved characters, Leslie and Ron, connect again, in a way that was both wildly humorous and emotionally resonant. <laughs> Wow. Apparently, Craig is studying yoga. These are the only dry clothes I could find. Well, you look great. I feel extremely angry. Oh, come on. Stop whining, you big baby. I've seen you with your eyebrows blown off. I've seen you without a mustache. I've seen it all. There's nowhere to run, Ron. You have tried every possible means of escape. There's nothing to do but talk. What happened to these workplace proximity associates? Hmm? Spill it. A season three bottle episode of Friends, one of NBC's most popular comedies of all time, is my favorite episode from the show. Titled The One Where No One's Ready centers around Ross's frustration at having to corral his friends into getting ready to attend a function at the museum where he works. Chandler tricks Joey into drinking chicken fat, Rachel cannot decide what to wear, Monica cannot stop herself from breaking into her ex's answering machine and leaving embarrassing messages. And Phoebe, the only one dressed and ready on time, gets a stain on her dress and needs to change. And all the while, Ross humors them until he is ready to burst. Okay, buddy boy, here it is. You hide my clothes, I'm wearing everything you own. Oh my god! The opposite of taking somebody's underwear. (laughs) Look at me. I'm Chandler. Could I be wearing any more clothes? (laughs) Maybe if I wasn't going commando. (laughs) The episode still makes me laugh, 25 years after it first aired. And its strength is giving us the essence of what we love about the show the casual and hilarious banter between six friends. It is a masterclass in the rapid-fire relatable comedy that takes place in the span of a half hour in Monica's apartment. As a diehard fan of Dan Harmon's revolutionary series Community, my favorite episode is also a bottle episode. The Megan gans penned Cooperative Calligraphy from Season 2 revolves around a simple premise. Seven community college friends lock themselves in their study room in an effort to figure out which one of them stole one of the group members' missing pen. The tension that comes from the idea that the culprit is among them begins to unearth the bottled-up feelings those in the group have toward each other. And in addition to being an immensely funny episode, by the time they walk out of the study room together, you can feel that their relationship as a unit has reached a new level— One that is rare and meaningful. Annie, I'd just like to say on behalf of whoever actually stole this pen, I really am sorry about all this. I knew it was you. I knew it was you. All I know is it could be any of you. And for all we know, it's you. I wish it were. I really do. I wish I could just find it behind my ear. I'd rather be that stupid than have to think that any one of us might be this inconsiderate. After all we've been through, it almost seems impossible. It seems less than impossible something impossible actually seems more likely here we go when your speech to take us home what if a ghost took the pen let him finish i am finished for real honestly seriously why not why not just a ghost took the pen okay i've been saying that for hours and we should have been listening to troy from the beginning guys look in your hearts and answer this question honestly what's more likely That someone in this group doesn't belong in this group, or ghosts. If we have to choose between turning on each other or pinning it on some specter with unfinished pen-related business, I'm sorry, but my money's on ghosts. One of Breaking Bad's most notable and most polarizing episodes is a bottle episode. Titled The Fly, it was the result of budget issues during Season 3. Ryan Johnson, the director of The Last Jedi, was tasked with telling a character-centric story in which master and apprentice Walt and Jesse are stuck in one room, the drug lord Gus Fring's meth super lab. Walt announces to Jesse he will not continue to make the drugs they need to sell until he first disposes of a housefly that has found its way into the lab. And while that sounds like a supremely boring episode of television, or even an incredibly boring opening, the key to its resonance is the relationship between the two characters as one holds a devastating secret that would destroy their relationship forever. It's a taut, emotional ride for the viewer who knows the secret and watches as the characters open up to one another in intensely personal ways. All the while, the secret flutters around the room between Walt and Jesse at times, and then just out of reach. There was some perfect moment, and it passed me right by. I I had to have enough to leave them. That was the whole point. Out of this. And this makes any sense if i if I didn't have enough, but it had to be before she found out Skyler had to be before that perfect moment for what to drop dead Are you saying you want to die I'm saying. I've lived too long. And on that same level is a masterpiece of modern television. Mad Men's famous bottle episode, The Suitcase. Don Draper and his protege, Peggy Olson, spend an evening toiling over a failing advertising pitch. And the episode culminates with the two of them sharing their personal demons with each other and realizing that for all they've been through, they're not alone. You know what? Here's a blank piece of paper. Why don't you turn that into glow coat? Are you out of your mind? You gave me 20 ideas, and I picked out one of them that was a kernel that became that commercial. So you remember? I do. It was something about a cowboy. Congratulations. No, it was something about a kid locked in a closet because his mother was making him wait for the floor to dry, which is basically the whole commercial. It's a kernel. Which you changed just enough so that it was yours. I changed it into a commercial. What, are we going to shoot him in the dark in the closet? That's the way it works. There are no credits on commercials. But you got the Clio. It's your job. I give you money, you give me ideas. And you never say thank you. That's I'm... what the money is for. You're young, you will get your recognition. And honestly, it is absolutely ridiculous to be two years into your career and counting your ideas. Everything to you is an opportunity. And you should be thanking me every morning when you wake up, along with Jesus, for giving you another day. So why am I talking about bottle episodes? That's a good question. I don't know. Well, no, I know. I had wanted to do something special since this is the 50th episode. A small milestone. And I wanted to surprise you. So I rented a tiny ship and was planning to take you on a really nice trip to Ord Mantell or Navarro or even Batuu just to say thank you for joining me on two and a half years of fun and exciting adventures. But I'm not a pilot. Truthfully, I've never flown my own ship before. You know, Han Solo and Poe Dameron and Harrison Doola make it look so easy. But it's not. There's so many buttons. Anyway, I think I was supposed to go west, and instead I went east. Is east even a direction in space? Hey, if you want to come this way... So, after wandering a little too far east, our ship was caught in a tractor beam by an Imperial Star Destroyer, and my plans for the episode went out the proverbial window. Uh, if you wouldn't mind walking a little faster and keeping up with me, I'd really appreciate it. I got us off the ship undetected. Ungar Plud is going to kill me if I don't get this vessel back to him. And right now, I'm looking for a way out. I mean, there has to be a way to shut down the tractor beam, right? Let's try this hallway. Wait, I hear stormtroopers coming this way. Quick, there's an escape pod right here. Let's jump in. Okay, buckle in. I think I just have to press this button and we're on. Well, here we are. In a small pod heading to whatever planet is closest to us. This is looking more and more like a bottle episode by the minute. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Production. Oh no, I don't have the theme song. Wait, I think we're still close enough to connect to the Star Destroyer's Wi-Fi. What do you think the password is? I'll try Empire, but that's probably unlikely since it's so easy to guess. Hey, it worked. I wonder if the password is Empire on all the Star Destroyers. Good to know if we're ever in this situation again. Not that we'd ever be in this situation again. We won't be in this situation. Ever again. I promise. Okay, I'll just grab the theme song from a previous episode. Just bear with me for a moment. Just have to fast forward through the intro. Wow, these intros are pretty long, aren't they? Ah, okay, here we go just have to cue this up. Okay, where were we? Ah, yes, yes. This is looking more and more like a bottle episode by the minute. This is the 50th episode. And this is Star Wars Prototypes and Productions. sun to Tatooine and every planet in between Star Wars prototypes and production with your host David Quinn. It's a trap. Yes, master. Not well, we have the, standard, the more you tighten your grip, target, the more star systems will slip through your fingers. I want to learn the ways of the force and become a Jedi like my father. The force will be with you. Isn't space beautiful? I mean, ignoring the fact that we just fled for our lives from a star destroyer that is currently searching for us, and we're completely exposed to being blasted and turned to stardust at any moment. And we're stuck in a tiny escape pod until we locate a planet. But isn't space beautiful? Just being away from Earth for a bit, and up among the stars. It's quiet up here. I wish I had something special for you on this 50th episode. I was so wrapped up in getting this vessel and flying us somewhere, that I didn't plan what I would actually do for it. I mean, I could tell you a story. Actually, I could tell you six stories. Yes, six stories. How does that sound? I've had so much fun doing the six stories conversations with other collectors, and had planned to do one of my own at some point. And hey, until we find a planet to head toward, we have some time. Okay, so if I were sharing stories about six items in my collection, which ones would I choose? Even though I only focus on Star Wars, my collection ranges from items produced in 1977 to ones that actually haven't been released in stores yet. Primarily, I collect modern Star Wars prototypes and vintage carded figures. But for this six-stories conversation, I'm going to try to cover a Kenner production figure, vintage and modern prototypes, and an interesting two-dimensional piece as well. Let me just pull up a little bit of music to set up the six-stories segment. While I'm looking for it, quick 50th episode fun fact. I've composed most of the transition and interlude pieces you hear in each episode. I usually focus on a particular character or theme from one of the Star Wars films or series, and I try to give my interpretation through music. It started out as an exercise, and I really enjoy doing it. Ah, found just the right one. I think you'd be surprised to hear which character inspired this one, but the piece has become a personal favorite of mine. Here we go. This is Six Stories with me, David Quinn. Okay, so for story number one, I really wanted to choose something special. Now, I plan on doing a number of these six stories episodes over the next few months, maybe a few years. So I actually have a lot of stories to share. Uh, so with this one, I wanted to choose something that was kind of different and kind of special. And so instead of picking one item for story number one, I wanted to pick one particular character. And I wanted it to be from the vintage, the original vintage line, the Kenner line. And so the one that I chose was the 1985 Power of the Force R2-D2 with the pop-up lightsaber. And this was a really special, the figure's always been a really special one to me, because it was one that I didn't have as a child. I didn't even know it existed until the early 90s, when I went to my first toy show and saw it on the back of a, a Power of the Force card back. I didn't even know the Power of the forest line existed. And as soon as I saw this R2-D2, it was one that always stuck with me and one that when I became a a serious collector, it was one of the pieces that I was really aiming to buy. The first example I picked up was a loose, complete R2-D2 with the pop-up saber. And I paid a whopping $39 for it. And then uh, fortunately, uh, a few months later, I was able to pick up a carded example. And so once I had the carded example, I sold off my loose one to pay for it. And at that time, I think it was, you know, maybe eight months after I had originally purchased it, I was able to sell it for $160, just for the loose one with the saber. So I picked up this carded example. It's a beautiful carded example. It's almost everything we'd want. It's, you know, unpunched. The bubble looked great. The card looked great. The figure looked fantastic. And uh, the only thing it had on it was a KB Price sticker. And the original price was $3.79 for this figure. So I sent it in to be graded, as I did with all of my stuff. Uh, first of all, to, to verify that it was completely authentic, that there weren't any touch ups on it. I, you know, this was in 2011, early 2012, so I was still getting to, to understand. Um, what to look for on, on card backs and on figures and, you know, and authenticating them. And I love the way this stuff looked in a cased in acrylic, you know, with the, the grade. And it came back in 80, which was fine. The card was an 80, the bubble and the figure were 85s. I still look at it to this day and I still think it's an 85. And if I were to send it out to be graded again, it would probably come back in 85. But I was happy with it. I, I paid $175, which was... You know, essentially fifteen dollars more than I had sold my loose one for, uh, so I looked at it as as a, a solid pickup. I was really thrilled to finally have a carded example. Uh, I would say sometime within the next six months to a year, I was on eBay one night and I was able. I was just going through you know my normal Star Wars searches, and I was looking up some of the the newly listed items, and a carded, graded R two D two with a pop up saber. Popped up and it was graded straight 85s, which means the card, the bubble, and the figure were all 85, and the overall grade was an 85. It had no price sticker on it, it was unpunched, and the person wanted $250 for it. Now, if you know today's prices, you know that's insane, that, that's an absolute steal. And even back then, to me, that was a complete steal for straight 85s. So I figured I would get the 85s uh, and I would, I would sell. I would wind up eventually selling the 80 and then keeping the 85. Well, I grew really attached to the 80 because that was my first one, the first one that I'd ever purchased. So to this day, I still have the 80. And I still have my second one, the 85, which I bought for $250, and neither of them will ever leave my collection. So then I bought a third one, uh, probably a year or so later, maybe a little further than that, uh, maybe a few years later. And I had purchased it from a a well-known seller who was uh, selling on eBay, and again, it was uh, graded in 85, I think one of the subgrades was an 80, Um, but another beautiful example, unpunched, and so I had now three of them. Uh, And so I had hit a point in the fall of 2017, after attending Star Wars Celebration in Orlando and then starting to go to different meetups... um, I decided to trek out to Cincinnati, Ohio for the Cincinnati Toy Show for the first time, and I was really excited about it, and I wanted to bring stuff that I could sell that would would help me to pay for some of the, my pickups, or I could bring, you know, I wanted to bring some stuff that I could trade just in case, you know, somebody was willing to do some sort of trade. And at this time, I was only collecting vintage. So, I took the carded R2D2 with the pop-up saber number 3, and I brought that one out with me. And when I did, um, I did a trade with a friend of mine, David Montauk, who had a piece that really meant a lot to me, um, that he and I tried to work out a deal on a while ago. If you listened to the Christmas episode, uh, you might be familiar with it. It's one that I basically passed on. I had made my peace with it uh, a while ago, and um, I always had a feeling that it would come back to me at some point. And so he had it at for sale at the Cincinnati Toy Show, the room sales. And um, I had, he asked me if I had anything uh, to, to trade him and, or, or for sale. And I said that I had a, a carded RTD two Power of the Force RTD two with a pop up lightsaber, uh, graded eighty five. And his his eyes lit up, and he just he got really excited, and he said, I, I need one of those for my collection." Maybe we can work out something. So, so that night at the room sales, uh, he came by where I, I was set up, and and um, he took a look at it, and we were trying to work out a, a price, and he offered me what I felt was an incredibly fair price, especially at the time, and it was more money than than I was expecting to get for it. And so, what I did to kind of meet him halfway is I took some money off of uh, his offer and said, "What if we, what if we include?" The Plo Koon, the, the first shot Plo Koon piece, um, as, part of, as part of the trade as well. Um, so, David came away from, from that event with a piece that he really wanted, and I came away um, with a piece that really meant a lot to me. Um, I had sold the third one, and I really, the, the prices had started to jump after that, after 2017, to the point where I didn't really think I'd ever buy another one. I was happy with the two that I had. I had spent $250 on the second one and $175 on the first one. Um, and I just, you know, at that point, the, the prices had, had far exceeded what I was willing to pay for another one. And that happened until I think for the next two years, I didn't, I wasn't looking for one. And then I was at the Columbus toy show in 2019. I think it was in the spring of 2019 or the fall. And, I stumbled upon a vendor who had a bunch of carded graded figures, and he had figures that at the time the prices were pretty expensive. You know, he would have like a a Ramba for maybe $400 graded at an 80. He had a Luke Poncho, and I think he was asking, you know, a a really high amount on it, and it was a a lower grade, maybe a 75. And so I started flipping through and I said to him, Do you have any other? do you have any other figures and, and he pointed to this bin that looked almost like a, a bin that you would use to hold records like a, a crate. And there was some stuff on top of it. And, and so no one had looked through it. So I pulled the stuff off and there were some, there were a few more power of the force figures. Ones that again, not the best uh, graded condition, but, and, and the prices were pretty high. And then there was a carded power of the force R2D2 with the pop-up lightsaber graded in 85 overall, straight 85s. And unpunched and I mean it's just gorgeous. And so I was expecting him to say it was going to be somewhere around anywhere from 1000 to 1500 for going by the other prices that he had. And he looked at me and he said, uh, this one's 700. And I, you know, my eyes lit up at that point because that you know that that's a fantastic price or was a fantastic price for what it was at the time. And so I made him I made him an offer on it and he accepted my offer. And so I walked away in 2019, which is, you know, only a few years ago uh, for $600 for an R2-D2 with a pop-up saber. So those are my four vintage R2-D2s with a pop-up lightsaber. Uh, three of which I still have today and I will probably own them for the rest of my life Uh, I love this figure Um, all of the 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 stickers on the front are are nice you know bright and and white Um, the the bubbles are crisp and sharp Uh, they're all unpunched so that one meant a lot to me so that is story number one For story number two, I wanted to discuss a vintage pre-production item. I don't have a very large pre-production collection when it comes to vintage. In fact, I have very little, if anything. Um, I would love to have a larger vintage pre-production collection. The biggest problem is the cost and the fact that I really came in about a decade too late. But I knew that I had missed out on what was the prime time to buy all of these amazing pieces that you see on, you know, in our social media groups, uh, on on eBay and Facebook and in people's collections today. So for me, it was never in the cards to really go for a nice vintage pre-production collection. Um, but I did want something. And if I was if I was able to land at least one piece, and my, my goal had been to land like a piece a year, a small piece. And so the first piece I ever got was in 2015. It was right around the time of The Force Awakens, the first movie that came out after Disney purchased Lucasfilm back in 2012. And so this was this was in the winter of 2015. So there's a former sculptor who goes by the name of Mr. Klimko on eBay. And from time to time, he sells stuff, uh, stuff that he had worked on and and these pre-production pieces that he still has, that still remain in his collection. And what he did, which I thought was really interesting, really, really fun and and smart, was um, at the time that The Force Awakens came out, around that holiday, in between Thanksgiving and Christmas, he did a series of auctions uh, where he would auction off these these pieces, and he had things like wax castings and some first shot torsos, and 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 they call them um, like head pull tests, you know, where it's a essentially a first shot head and a first shot torso, um, and they they check the durability of the the body, you know, and the and the head and the, and the joint, um, and he just had all these really unique, amazing pieces, and they went beyond Star Wars as well too. Uh, it was Star Wars, I think it was like Rose Petal Place. Um, Kenner superpowers, a number of the, the different Kenner properties that he had worked on and, and had remnants from. And so as soon as I saw that, one night uh, I remember seeing it, in, in, it came up in my eBay searches, and it was one, one item, and then it in the listing it had an explanation of what he had planned to do. And that he was going to do this essentially every two years at the release of every uh, every Star Wars film that was coming out for the new trilogy. And that alone was really exciting. And and I remember that probably the piece that I wanted the most at the time was a clear first-shot head for Luke Jedi. And that one wound up selling... I think it sold around $800. And then two years later, he had another one, and it sold for 1200 So he had... Uh, an Admiral Akbar test pull body for shot body, shot in a translucent plastic, and it was kind of milky white. And so, in this, he was selling the front and back of the of the torso. And uh, included along with it was an extra front of a torso. He didn't have another back, but he had those those three pieces. And so, I thought I might not be able to afford something big but I can, I might be able to get that. And so I targeted that one as the piece that I would like to own. And one that I thought would probably sell for the, the, the cheapest amount of money. And I can't remember if I won it via auction or if he had it as as a buy it now. Um, but I grabbed it and, you know, I doing the math on it too. I mean, it comes out to, you know, essentially $125 per piece. And I, I looked at that and I said, okay, that makes total sense for me. I can, I can afford that. And, um, for that price I'll be able to add it so I added it for for 3 and um that is really it's it's probably the one of the biggest pre-production pieces I have which is you know when you when you look at other people's collections I mean some people some people have hard copies like like we own production figures um but uh but that piece that piece meant a lot to me and it still means a lot to me I have yet to have it cased up nicely and I do want to get it one day and just you know. Take a, a production Akbar head and, and limbs, and then put that along with the the, the body, uh, and so that's that's a goal that I hope to do soon. Um, but that is uh, that was my first vintage pre-production piece that I acquired. For story number three, I wanted to focus on something that was still vintage, but that was two-dimensional instead of three-dimensional, like the figures. And for me, uh, it's it's one of my favorite pieces that I own. Um, so most of the time, when you think of 2D pieces or two-dimensional pieces, you think of things like proof cards and chromalins, the, you know, the early pre-production stuff. And while those are great, I've never really been drawn to them as much as I am toward... Um the two d original artwork uh photo art is incredibly expensive you know you're talking tens of thousands of dollars um, but for me, one of the the things I loved growing up, something that just sparked my imagination and and something that just fascinated me was um the monster activity book so Happy House in nineteen eighty three put out a series of these activity books that were they they looked essentially like coloring books on the inside they they were in black and white on the cover the covers were usually a different color and it had a different Um, character on it. And so during Return of the Jedi, they came out with a number of these books. And my favorite one was the Monster Activity book from 1983. It had a blue cover. It had the Happy House logo in the top left-hand corner. Uh, The Star Wars Return of the Jedi logo was in black, and the words Monster Activity book were in white. And then um, taking up essentially three-quarters of the page was a picture of Jabba, uh, an up-close picture of Jabba from Jabba's palace. Um, they had things like color by numbers, um, they had word puzzles, um, a memory quiz, you know, where you would look at, at a picture on, on one page, and then you'd flip the, the to the next page, and it would be what looks like the same exact picture, but it would have slight differences, and you'd have to figure out what those differences were. Uh, there was also a monster maze um, that, that, Consisted of the face of the largest character, one of the largest characters, uh, um, from Jabba's Palace, and it was just—it's just a really great book. And so, a few years ago, uh, I was actually offered some of the artwork for it, um, and I was thrilled to be able to to come upon this. And then I had a friend who kindly offered it to me, and one of the pages that I love. Um, it's probably my favorite page and it's it's page 21 in the book and at the top uh the the title is Find the Guards and it says the rebels are trying to escape from Jabba's dungeon. How help them find the Gamorian guards before the guards find them? How many guards can you see in the picture below? And so it's a a picture that was drawn by the artist and it's Luke uh, on, on the on the right side, and Leia on the left side, and it's it's a, a full picture of them, and they're holding hands, and each of them has a blaster in their other hand, and Luke is in his Jedi uniform, and Leia is in her Endor uniform, and then above them is what looks like almost like an arch, like a a rock arch, and um, there are different Gamorrean guards. Uh, heads and bodies embedded in the arch, and so the idea is for a child to figure out how many there are in that picture. Um, and so I was able to get the artwork for that, and uh, it's really nice. And it's also one of those things too, where you can you can just slide your your finger over the artwork and feel the grooves uh, where the artist you know drew in 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 pen or pencil and then kind of traced over with with a uh, a black pen, um, and so. You know, I, I don't think I'll ever actually own any sort of photo art, um, and I'm not one to really go for proof cards, but for me, um, the artwork from this Monster Activity book from Return of the Jedi, 1983, means so much to me. And over the years, I've been able to add, you know, piece by piece, and, and uh, my goal is to one day have the entire book. And so I don't know if that's ever possible. <laughs> Probably still have a ways to go, but um, it's nice to know that this stuff is still out there. And so if there is something that you like, hunt for it, you know, try to make it happen. Um, Connect with people, inquire about it, ask people if they've ever seen anything or if they have a lead on it, or if they could even help you. Um, People in our hobby are very willing to help each other. And I I think that's really special. And I think if you lock yourself in with a good group of people who care about each other, um, you do wind up... Uh, helping each other obtain things. And it's almost just as exciting to find a piece for a friend than it is for your own collection. And so, uh, this particular piece came from my buddy Pete and it means so much to me. Uh, it's something that I, I just, I will always cherish. Um, I I think about, you know, being little Uh, at the time I was probably four years old, you know, and, and, um, and playing with this activity book and looking at it as like we would almost today at a video game system, you know, where the possibilities are endless, right? Or, or, just, um, or just turning on a, a television and being able to see any sort of show that you could possibly imagine and kind of diving into that world. And for me, it was this monster activity book. And it was the activity books that came out, you know, around that time as well. Um, but this one in particular was just very special and so to have a piece of the artwork that is responsible for every page that was made um you know for of that particular image you know for all of these books that went around to children and and adults uh in the early 1980s is um is something that just it's it still shocks and and surprises me uh that I'm, that I'm able to have this and it really means a lot so That is story number three. For story number four, I wanted to discuss a modern piece and really the first modern hard copy, the pre production hard copy piece that I ever owned. And it was one that I got in the summer of 2017. Um, I, had, I had just started collecting modern pre-production pieces very casually in early 2016, and then by, by the summer of 2017, I decided to go full force into it um, and to really become a modern collector. Um, and as I said before, I don't have a lot of vintage pre-production items, and I remember looking at a friend's collection and saying, I will never have this because I've, I've missed the boat already. And that was okay, because the people that had, had collected this stuff, they did so at a time when it was more readily available, and it was, it was much cheaper. You know, it was affordable. And I looked at the modern lines that, that had been out for the last uh, 20 years, and I said, you know, I, wouldn't, I will never have a vintage pre-production collection uh, that I would consider an A plus, but I have the opportunity to do so with modern. And I was so connected to a lot of the modern stories. Um, I was not a, a fan of the prequels, but I love Clone Wars, uh, love Rebels, and you know everything up till you know even Bad Batch uh, today and and Mandalorian. And so my goal became: well, this is really as of now unexplored. Let me see if I can if I can kind of delve into it. And so I had missed out by a matter of a, a month or so um, on picking up an Ahsoka hard copy, which was, you know, at the time she was becoming my favorite modern uh, character. But I was still able to pick up the hard copy from, uh, from the Clone Wars of the character Plo Koon, uh, who was a mentor to Ahsoka, has been my favorite modern uh, character, or at least modern design of a character for years. And then the connection uh, to Ahsoka and just to the, the Jedi Order in the Clone Wars, um, and plus the fact he's voiced by the incredible James Arnold Taylor, who does an amazing job with his voice. I just, you know, I, again, I just fell in love with that character. And if I couldn't get the Ahsoka, uh, for me, I could get the next best thing, which was this Plo Koon. And uh, this seller on eBay had... Uh, a number of hard copies, and um, and had this plocoon, and it was just it was hand painted. It just looked beautiful. I contacted the seller, and she was very kind. She gave me a, uh, a better price than um, what she was asking on eBay, um, and we <laughs> magically did a deal off of eBay, uh, and I was able to pick it up and to add it to my collection. And I just remember the day that it came in. I, I think I had to wait something like three or four weeks for it to arrive from China. And when it finally came in, it came in in this little brown cardboard box, uh, you know, and I just kind of tore it open and all of the parts I had asked her to pack it really nicely. and, And she had put all of the parts into these little separate bags, uh, which is something I still do to this day when I don't display the stuff. And, um, I remember sitting there and and put it and just piecing this hard copy together for the first time and just looking at every piece and how it was hand painted and and being shocked you know that some of the the really intricate details that you would associate not with hand painting but with you know a factory painting because it's so delicate you know and so so detailed and this hard copy captured all of that and it looked the the figure is my favorite sculpted figure in the entire modern era and but to have a hand-painted hard copy again when I put that last piece on I think the last piece was the head and kind of fit the head on you know and had the 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 hood uh the back of the hood down over over the back and had the arms and the the saber it it just I looked at it and I remember thinking this does not look like a figure this looks like a, a a piece of art you know, and it really is. I mean, it's just a gorgeous piece. I was amazed at how all of the parts fit into one another perfectly. And it was just so exciting. You know, and the fact that the figure came complete, for me, that, it was the first one I got. And it really is my, my favorite piece that I, that I own, I think, um, you know, as far as modern hard copies, uh, especially the hand-painted ones. And it's, it's just something that, you know, I just absolutely love. story number five. When it comes to modern Star Wars action figures, I believe I own the world's smallest hard copy ever produced by Hasbro. And it's a really unique and interesting one. I picked it up through a source a few years ago, and I actually received uh, two versions of it. So the first one is one and a half inches tall, and the second is one and one quarter inch tall. And while very little is known about them, They're really interesting to see up close. The figures are completely articulated, meaning that they have full articulation on the wrists, on the elbows, on their arms, at the hips, at the legs, and at the feet, their heads. They come with backpacks and the weapons, and they only stand one and one quarter inch and one and a half inch tall. On the bags are the sizing in inches, the percentage that they've been shrunk from. Uh, from the three-and-three-quarter-inch figure, and then the name of the figure. Now, whoever had this named the figure wrong. They called it Commander Wolf. And so, for me, as a Clone Wars fan, I was thrilled to be able to add this to my collection, to have two more examples of a Commander Wolf figure. Uh, However, as I had taken pictures of these, and when I took pictures, I took a, a literal dime and put the dime up next to the figures to show how small these items were. A friend reached out to me and told me that they were not uh, the Commander Wolf figure from the three-and three-quarter- inch black series like I had believed them to be. But they were the concept snowtrooper figure, uh, the concept created by Joe Johnston, the legendary Star Wars designer, um, and that the figure was from the Legacy Collection from 2009. So once I had that image in my head, I was able to finally see the figure, to see this concept snowtrooper done by Joe Johnston. And the figure is really incredible. On the packaging, uh, the packaging text says, In this concept art by Joe Johnston, the Imperial snowtrooper wears armor with features that are reminiscent of armor actually worn by samurai warriors. The gear has stylized elegance while still protecting the trooper from blaster fire and extreme cold. And so really, if you were to look at the snow trooper, it has what looks like a samurai's helmet, but with the eyes in the shape of your standard stormtrooper. The figure has, is mostly in white and then has uh, certain areas of his body, like, like the the top parts of his arm, uh, the, the armor around his chest, and then parts around his hips, are in blue with some blue and some red touch-ups on his helmet. Once I found out that it wasn't Commander Wolf, but was the Concept Snowtrooper, I traded it to a friend who has a Concept Snowtrooper run and has the hand-painted hard copy of the 2009 figure. And in return I received a Clone Wars hard copy of a character that I absolutely love. So I was thrilled to part with it. I did keep the smallest one, the one in a quarter inch hard copy. And again, I believe that that's the smallest hard copy that I've ever seen and is probably out there uh, that came directly from Hasbro. My sixth and final story is a short one, but a meaningful one. I attended Celebration Orlando in 2017 And it was the first major Star Wars event I'd ever been to, and really the first Star Wars event I'd been to, uh, as far as collecting. And I believe it was that Thursday night, that first night of Star Wars Celebration, that I had met a fellow Luke collector named Christian. And it's really funny, I liken it to being at college and meeting people in that first week uh, where you learn their name and maybe it sticks with you, but you have no understanding of really who they are and, and how they'll, they'll connect to you in the future, right? Or how you'll connect with them. And so I had met this gentleman named Christian and he and I really hit it off. We started talking, we both shared an interest in Luke and I had explained to him that I was really new to this, that this was my first, you know, event. Um, and I think we managed to see one another uh, at different points during celebration. And I think it was either on a, a Friday night at the room sales or Saturday. Uh, at, they they did like a, a secondary room sales um, at the convention itself. And I think it was at one of those events where he and I were, were still talking. And he paused for a second and he reached in his pocket and he pulled out this little thing that was wrapped up in uh, what looked like tissue paper. And he, as he started to unfold it, he said to me, "You know, I, I, I want you to have this. I think it's really cool, and you know, we we made this, and I want you to have this. And it looks like R2D2 with a third leg in the in the center. Um, and it was it was either cast in resin or plastic. And he explained to me too that it was an R3 that um, it has a clear dome, whereas the R2 units have a, a solid dome, and." It's a white astromech droid with a clear dome, and then where the blue colors are are on uh, R2-D2's sticker and on his dome, instead it's red, and on his his arms as well. And the paint is beautiful on it, Uh, it looks like it came right from Kenner, which is amazing. And then if you look on the two, those two long extended rectangles that are on the sticker... Uh, In one rectangle, it says Celebration, and in the second one, it says Orlando 2017. And Celebration Orlando was a real eye-opener for me, because I had no idea that the community was this large, this passionate, uh, this creative, and this incredible. And so to receive something like this uh, at my first event, I was amazed that somebody could produce something like this. And it's meant so much to me. I mean, it's... It's been in my room and, and on display really for the past four years, um, And I just it's become one of my favorite pieces. To me, it encapsulates all of the creativity, the passion, the fun, the excitement uh, and the possibilities that we have as Star Wars fans and collectors, uh, where we really can do anything. There's so much potential and, and so much power. <laughs> in connecting to other people through these events and through these moments. And our friends put this stuff together. And so whenever I look at this R3 droid, uh, it always makes me think of not only the wonderful and amazing time I had at Celebration Orlando, but it really just encapsulates everything that is special and wonderful about Star Wars and about our collecting community and our hobby. And I hope that this continues for decades and generations. So those are six stories about some of the items in my collection. As I mentioned earlier, I'd like to do a few of these episodes in the future, maybe under particular themes or topics, which will cover some of the pickups and pieces that mean something to me. And I have a number of six stories conversations planned with other collectors, and I can't wait for you to hear them and to get to know our friends a little better. Oh, hey, I'd been talking this entire time and didn't even realize we've stumbled upon a planet. I'm not sure which one it is, but from up here, it's beautiful. It's a swirl of blue and green, and it looks oddly familiar. I'm directing us toward it now. We'll land in a few minutes. Thank you so much for joining me for the 50th episode of Star Wars Prototypes and Production. Have you ever done something on a small scale and have it become something larger than you could imagine, where it shapes a part of your life in a profound way? If you've ever listened to an episode of this podcast and shared it with a friend, or reached out to connect with me, or sent me kind words of encouragement, all I can truly say is thank you. It's been a fun two and a half years since I took a chance on something that had been on my mind and heart for years, and I've learned so much about Star Wars, the people who created the toys we collect, and those in our collecting community whom I call friends. I've done episodes from many different states, from many different rooms, convention centers, hotel rooms, friends' collection rooms, and even a few restaurants along the way. I have learned about the pre-production process of a toy through research and from conversations with dear friends much more knowledgeable than myself on the matter. I was at a meetup recently, it was the 1st meetup of the year, and a friend and I were talking about one of those moments we experienced together that I was fortunate to record. And we realized we were still shocked at how impactful that night had been. The bonds we had formed then still carry on to this day and hopefully for years to come. And it's crazy to say this, but that moment wouldn't have happened without the podcast. If you enjoy these episodes and stories, please subscribe or follow the show on your preferred podcast platform. It's free to do so, and this way you'll know as soon as the next episode drops. And if you like the podcast, please share it with a friend, and please leave a review. These reviews not only help to give listeners an idea of what the podcast is like, but it also serves as a good indicator as to whether it would be worth their time as well. And on top of that, it also helps algorithm-based platforms to recommend prototypes and production to people interested in finding new audio shows. Here's to the next 50 episodes.